Hello, music enthusiasts. Welcome to Sound Encounters, a music podcast where I explore new and classic releases, different genres, and your favorite artists and bands. I am your host, Cesar Torres. Thank you for joining me today. So I kind of wanted to start off the 21st episode of Sound Encounters with uh, coming in hot, coming in, coming in real hot, because I saw something on Twitter that just irked me and it's it's nothing new it's something that exists not only in music communities and culture but pretty much anything that revolving around pop culture like books or movies i guess television too what i wanted to discuss is gatekeeping for for today's intro because for those of you who are on twitter or on tiktok then you might have seen this viral tiktok of a guy skateboarding and drinking what i think is cranberry juice if i remember him yeah cranberry juice he's skateboarding drinking cranberry juice while listening to fleetwood mac and it's a it's an absolutely wonderful tiktok if you haven't seen it if you're one of the few people who don't know about this tiktok uh, go watch it it's it's such a joy and and because of this popular tiktok streams and record sales for Fleetwood Mac just boosted and, and it's all because of this 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 TikTok that just went viral. And funny enough, I had recently watched this YouTube video where the ad before the video was this dude whose TikTok name is 420dogface208. Um great name by the way. But the 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 ad that I got, it was a TikTok ad and it was of him and it was like this 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 fun little ad with the Fleetwood Mac music, basically, you know, advertising TikTok. But he's he was that big that TikTok featured him in an ad. But what I want to discuss is this this Twitter post that I saw that that irked me. And looking at the comments, you know, it irked a lot of people too because this this one Twitter user, which I'm not going to name because I don't want any bullying, any more bullying of this person, even though. They kind of started it, but <laughs> this this person says, I grew up listening to Fleetwood Mac. You heard them on TikTok. We are not the same. So part of me is angry at this tweet, but also part of me kind of cringes because it was, it was me growing up. <laughs> I was such, I don't know, you can call it elitism or, or whatever, but because I listened to one type of music or because I didn't listen to one type of music, you know, it made me better than you for whatever reason. You know, you hear all those people are just like, I don't listen to country and rap. I listen to everything but country and rap because country and rap are just, just, they're not music or they're, they're the lowest forms of, of art or music or whatever. And and that to me just screams elitism and pretentiousness. And growing up, I, I kind of used to be like that. I would get angry at people for listening to to one type of music when really you start to realize that music is not for dividing people or it's it's such a stupid thing to get upset about you know i didn't really think of how that tiktok or just tiktok in general kind of could influence uh, a lot of listening tastes for not just younger people but for other people who use TikTok and have never heard a specific band or genre or whatever, and and how TikTok kind of helps other people discover those bands, those artists, those songs. So instead of being vitriolic about, you know, like oh, 
you've, you've heard this song through TikTok. I've been listening to this band for years. I'm better than you. You know, it's just so pretentious. Instead, we should be celebrating the fact that a lot of younger people are being exposed to Fleetwood Mac. You know, less younger people are listening to the, to the radio now. And with TikTok's exposure, they were uh, now able to listen to this amazing Fleetwood Mac song and maybe other amazing Fleetwood Mac songs. Also, could you imagine being upset that a mainstream band is going mainstream again? Like, I I don't understand this person's anger towards TikTok or the fact that these younger people are getting exposure. Look, you already know my stance on, on gatekeeping and gate, gatekeeping certain types of bands and music. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts and opinions on this subject matter. You can respond to me via the Sound Encounters Twitter at Sound Encounters or you can head over to Anchor, send me a voice message, and I'll feature your voice message on the next episode of Sound Encounters. There's a link in the podcast description where it'll take you to to where you need to go to record that voice message. You know, and while you're at it, you could follow the Sound Encounters Instagram page at Sound Encounters. You know, why not? I got some great posts on there. I, I recently posted a, a couple photos and a video of my Spiderland vinyl. I also posted that on Twitter, but you know, go follow the Instagram as well too. You get a, you get some fantastic pics on the Sound Encounters Twitter page. I got a great show for you guys coming up. I'm going to be talking about New Wave, but first, as always, we got to talk about this past week in music. All right, so we actually had a very interesting past week in music. We got a surprise single from Kanye. We've got a number of LPs, one that I didn't expect was going to come out this week, actually. But before we get into the LPs, of course, I got to talk about the singles. The first single that I listened to this week was the new clipping track, Pain Every Day. And man, I have to say... This might be my favorite single so far. You know, as soon as the drill and bass beat started uh, on the second verse, that sealed the deal for me. Um, it's a very industrial sounding song, a very drill and bass inspired song as well with ethereal droning uh, throughout the song. This has to be one of David's strongest songs in terms of lyricism and, and storytelling because he talks a lot about black people being lynched and is sort of comparing that to what's happening right now with BLM and the protests. The group makes a very unique decision with this song uh, in terms of using EVP recordings, which is voices of restless spirits. If you've ever watched any of those uh, ghost hunting shows, I don't really watch them, so I, I don't even know how to classify those kinds of shows, but they use those as the background in the, in the instrumental to add to that horror core element. And I, I'm glad that they actually did this because I think it's really cool, really unique thing to do for a horror core record. And I wish they did more of that or uh, to that degree for their last project from last year because it adds that element of surprise. And I certainly wasn't expecting that. And while I, I don't believe in ghosts, um, this was still a very awesome thing to hear in this track they went all out for this one and i just want to listen to the whole thing already and it's coming out 
pretty soon, October 22nd. So I'm excited to hear visions of bodies being burned, to say the least. Next, I heard Am I Something by Cloud Nothings, and I really wasn't expecting another uh, track from Cloud Nothings so soon after they released uh, The Black Hole Understands earlier this year. And, you know, I've had a very complicated relationship with Cloud Nothings because while I enjoy uh, some of their early works, especially Attack on Memory, I have been disappointed by this band year after year, especially that latest album, which isn't even a year old yet. Um, a lot of mind-numbingly boring indie rock with that last record. This track is a little more promising, but not by a lot. I thought it had a fairly standard chord progression. Nothing to complain about. Again, pretty pretty stale, but at least a bit better than what they recorded on The Black Hole Understands. Was a fan of the percussion and the distorted guitars, though. And Baldi's vocals have always been a stellar sell for me. You know, if a Cloud Nothings track is pretty stale, pretty boring, then you can always count on Baldi's vocals to really elevate the material. But again, their material is tiresome and derivative, but at least this song was better than their last album, which is probably why I'm going easy on it. So pretty average track. Next, I heard Keep It Moving by Static Selecta featuring Nas, Joey Badass, and Gary Clark Jr. You know, I really like the clean, glossy feel of the production. Selecta makes a, a classy and clean beat. And Joey and Nas have, have good verses too. They got good bars. Really nothing to complain about. The problem I have with this track, it's not even really a problem, is that it's just very underwhelming and it doesn't do much for me. But it's certainly not the worst thing I heard this past week. Because up next, I heard Na 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 by Kanye West, and my God, is this song a mess. I just want to say that I really like the beat, the the flute and the heavy 808 beat. It, you know, it's not for everyone, but it was weird enough for me to appreciate it. I think it's fun. It's, it's out there, so I liked it a lot. It kind of reminds me of an abstract hip-hop beat, you know, something that an abstract uh, rapper would use as, as a beat. So personally, I liked it. I can understand that. Not everyone will. The thing that gets me with this track is Kanye himself, because I don't think he works with this beat. It sounds very hype while also being a bit out there, but Kanye himself isn't hype. And he does talk a lot about the the presidential race because he is a candidate and he throws in a, a fucking Star Wars reference out of, out of nowhere. And he also talks about other drama that's happening in his life. But the subject and... Kanye's delivery are just so annoying, especially the na-na-na that he repeats throughout the song. You know, my ears just did not agree with that hook. Kanye was just so annoying throughout the track. And then they add a breakdown section that sounds like it was thrown in at the last second. It really didn't add anything. I mean, I guess it could have worked. A lot of things on this track could have worked. That's what it really sucks about this track is that you can hear a lot of the potential but it's not fully realized and I I feel like as Kanye gets older you know his vocal delivery he's he's never been the best singer and when he raps it kind of sounds like he talks but seriously as as his career continues I find him less and less interesting to hear with this track and I guess the entire Jesus is King album being the peak of my disinterest for him. Okay, before we get to the LPs, I heard one EP this week. This one coming from 
James Blake, a surprise release from James Blake and a, and a surprising new sound with his before EP. You know, we're all used to Blake's kind of sad boy alternative R&B sound, but he ends up taking a more of a house approach with this EP, which I wasn't expecting, you know, marrying house and techno beats with his usual brand of that sad boy alternative R&B. The title track on this thing is a piece that morphs from his melancholic R&B with a subdued techno beat, which I found a little bit dull, but then it crescendos into this drone that held itself there for long enough to get my attention, Then it turns into this full-blown house rave track. While it's not my favorite song on the EP, I can at least say it surprised me, and I, I appreciate its refusal to sit still and not lean one way or, or, or the other to a typical genre convention. The other tracks are fun fusions of R&B and house, the most interesting being the first track I keep calling, and what really stood out to me is, is a lot of the looping and glitching throughout this track. However, I can't say that about the other two tracks. They're mainly redundant and uninteresting and just failed to capture my attention. Interesting move for James. It's a fun little EP, something a bit different for fans of James Blake. Maybe he can fuse other genres together and work outside his comfort zone. Maybe that's why he released his EP. He was like kind of testing the waters. And that's really what stood out to me when I when I was listening to this. I was just like, man, this is such a bold move that maybe he's planning on releasing other material that sounds similar to this, but maybe he's not uh, as confident in that work. So he wanted to release this little EP to see how, how people would react. Definitely a couple good moments on here, but like I said, a, a lot of the other stuff is uninteresting to me, but I would still label it as a good EP, just for the sole reason that he's willing to step outside his comfort zone. All right, now let's get into the LP, that the heavy hitters for this week. The first project I heard this week was Streams of Thought Volume 3, Canaan Able by Black Thought. After listening to a couple of the, the singles that he released before this the, the entire project dropped, I was pretty much hyped for this one. While I wasn't a big fan of Volume 2, I can at least say Volume 1 was just filled with bangers, great verses, and, and amazing production. And we do find some of, of, of these great verses, great production on this record too. You know, songs like Magnificent, which is a, it's a highlight for Black Thought as he takes three verses to, to flex and tell everyone that he's the best and don't mess with him, all on top of this very jazzy beat. But the problem lies with, well, a lot of things, but when it comes to Magnificent, it's great in the moment. You know, it's, it's very fun to hear a veteran rapper like Thought talking about owning the competition, but it doesn't stick with you after the fact. And that's just one complaint. Another complaint I have is just weird feature decisions. Like, for example, Portugal the Man is featured in three of these tracks. I don't like Portugal the Man. <laughs> Not my favorite band. So as you can imagine, I was very skeptical seeing their name on three of these songs. And I wanted to give them benefit of the doubt. They actually do a pretty decent job on one track later on, uh, which I'll talk about later. But they ruin the nature of the beast. For one, the hook is annoying. It's like a Portugal the Man song or a stereotypical indie rock song on the radio, and I just don't think it fit Black Thought's aesthetic. 
and the squawking electronic sound throughout the song, again, reminiscent of a, an indie pop song or a Portugal the Man song, played throughout the, the, the track. And it, it had to be a decision from Portugal the Man. Like, it's just, it's so irritating. So I wasn't too happy about the features on this record either. But an, another thing that kind of baffled me is its scattered storytelling. The album opens with this skit interlude kind of and it mentions you know christopher columbus slaves native americans and while it is a very epic intro kind of gets you in the mood to hear whatever thought has to say a lot of these songs just feel weird because they end up talking about relationships or again a lot of thought just flexing and telling everyone that he is the best no one should mess with him and i don't i don't really understand that we could be good united talks about the woes of a relationship the hook from cs armstrong is at least catchy and strong but again i don't understand how it fits into the narrative then the narrative is is brought up by these interludes and sketches one in particular uh being steak um which starts with this dave Chappelle skit where he talks about how Colin Kaepernick's uh, kneeling during the national anthem he pissed off a bunch of white people. And he ends up tying that back to, to slavery and how black people were brutalized during that time period. Um, but I don't understand the connection with this particular song because Thought ends up talking about how he had to prove himself as, as a rapper again. He had to keep his name relevant. Um, but what is this connection to, to slavery? Is he connecting that the, the plight... Uh, of black people fighting to prove that they are human like is he relating this to his career to his struggle it could be it could be a stretch i'm just trying to like figure out what he's trying to say with this song especially with Chappelle's um intro but it, it could just be that a snippet of Chappelle's comedy act sounded good along with this dour beat so so far we have a lot of superficial lyrics a lot of odd choices but that doesn't mean everything on this record is bad i thought thought versus everybody was a highlight one dense verse about police brutality racism and trump you know thought kind of covers all his bases on this one and he raps over this low-key drum and keyboard beat that i thought was really nice good morning is also uh, still a fantastic track i talked about this track a couple weeks ago you know, I really do appreciate that gritty production and thought Pusha T and Killer Mike all had really killer verses. I will say that Portugal does do a better job on the penultimate track, Fuel. The the hook that they provide for that song, it fits the tone much better. And speaking of Fuel, I think it's a, a fantastic ending because I like Thought's message of staying positive staying hopeful hopeful during a hopeless time there is so much violence against black people and there and there seems to be no end in sight but that change that hope for change keeps him going it gives him fuel but that's just only a small handful of tracks on this 13 song record a lot of the slots on this record do end up being taken up by these interludes the songs are pretty short, ranging from two to three minutes, so they don't really leave a lasting impact. The lyrics don't leave a lasting impact. And some of the features on here, not not my thing. 
So while I was hoping for another killer project from Black Thought, it just ends up being a bit underwhelming. Next, I heard Burden of Proof, the second full-length album by Benny the Butcher. And a lot of the criticisms that I had for Black Thought, or at least one major criticism, I should say, for the Black Thought album I have for this record, because a lot of the lyrics don't leave a lasting impact. They are a bit superficial, but at least I can say it's consistent. (laughs) It's not all over the place like Thought's album was. The theme for this record is that Benny's proving himself as a rapper. His his flaw in most of these songs are really good. You know, he's flexing his role, he's selling cocaine. He's saying that he could have survived during the Tupac era. You know, again, very superficial, but at least he's not throwing in this really deep song about our current state, uh, the current state of the country. And also, the production really elevates Benny's verses. All of these songs are produced by Hitboy, and I, as well as many of you, I'm sure, thought he would. You know, he kills it on almost all of these songs. You know, Hitboy has that appreciation for that old school vibe, and that comes across uh, not only on this album, but a lot of the music he produces. Some of the highlights were the soulful looping on One Way Flight, the grittier, more aggressive, famous, the the vocal looping and the jazzy war paint, and the very hype, timeless. But production doesn't make a great album. It kind of just fluffs it up. And a lot of these lyrics kind of go in one ear and out the other. And throughout most of the album, I just wasn't feeling it. Except for a couple of songs, like New Streets, which is a two-minute song in the middle of the album that I didn't think would be much, but it turns out to be a very personal and introspective moment from Benny. He's talking to young hustlers directly, and he's telling them that, you know, he he learned a lot from his losses, and he also cares about what other hustlers think of him. So he's delivering a very vulnerable side to himself, and I think it provides a very good moment on the album. And another highlight is Thank God I Made It, which is dedicated to his mom and other single mothers. And he, and he talks about protecting his family, doing what he, what he needed to do. The production on this one is a, is a mix of smooth and jazzy instrumentals and old school homages. And I still think Timeless is a very great track with great features. And of course, I love the production. So uh, is it better than Black Thought's album? Just a little bit. Like I said, at least it's consistent. And I had more fun listening to this than Black Thought's album. Next, I heard Sign by Autecker, a new album from Sean and Rob. Their first proper release in years, because we're not going to count NTS and LSEC. They're like completely different beasts. <laughs> you know, and coming off of those two records, what, what were they going to make? What were they going to release? What are we as fans going to expect? Well, it's kind of shocking because we have a back to the basics album here because instead of focusing on dense layering and intricate arrangements, we get a very organic record with a focus on melody. And yeah, it's kind of shocking because we haven't had that in a while, but you know, it kind of makes sense because NTS and LSEC are just monsters of albums that require so much time and patience. No wonder Autecker decided to move back to that old, like, 90s melody sound. F7 was just a shocking listen 
because it features these harsh synth tones that provide us with this scattered melody. But I could at least say like we have a melody. <laughs> There's no rhythm here. Those harsh synth tones are backed up by these airy ambient pads that provides something resembling a structure. Then we have SI00, another song with a very fractured melody, this time consisting of these bubbly synth tones and a defined beat acting as the rhythm. This one actually reminds me a lot of their classic 90s output. And it's such a breath of fresh air because now I can say that I'm finding the beauty in the, in the simplicity of these songs. AU14 reminds me of Tri-Repite. It's not as me mechanical sounding as a lot of those songs on that record, but its heavy emphasis on rhythm kind of reminds me of that record. We also have tracks that lean more to the ambient and experimental side. Mataz Form 8 has this stretched out tone that acts like as, as a drone, while other lush textures take shape around it. The opening track, M4 Lemma, is the most dense and chaotic track here, as so many textures and rhythms are colliding with each other, creating this abstract ambient piece. You know, I thought it was setting the stage for the record, but then F7 and SI00 followed that track. Peace and AM is a favorite of mine, but again, because of its simplicity. I'm going to go back to that Trevor Pite comparison, but only because it's like fresh in my memory. Talked about that record for the IDM episode. It's kind of a favorite of mine right now. A lot of Autechre albums switch up being my favorite. Anyway, this track in particular, Peace and AM, reminds me a lot of Overand from Tri Repite. Both tracks follow this soothing and calming approach to its composition, Peace and being a bit more involved as it combines this swirling ambient pad and the pulsating beat. I will say this record is a bit all over the place. It does a lot of things. In fact, I would say it feels like a culmination of a lot of the stuff they've made over the years, kind of a celebratory album. But the main focus are the vibrant melodies. And again, some pieces are distracting from that central theme, like M4 Lemma or the closing track, or Cast, however you say it. Not exactly a forward-thinking album, but it's a nice nostalgic record with familiar melodies and familiar rhythms and a familiar Autechre feeling. And last, I heard Anime, Trauma, and Divorce by Open Mike Eagle. The only other Open Mike Eagle album I've heard is Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. And I love the personal and intimate storytelling from Mike on that album. That project in particular was dedicated to a housing project he grew up in, in Chicago. And a lot of the instrumentals are low-key and jazzy beats. Another thing I loved about Open Mike Eagle is his witty, co comical writing. You know, you balance that with the beats and the the forward-thinking lyrics. And, you know, that's my shit. I, I love to hear that in my rap music. For this new record, we get another concept album, this time focusing on his divorce and how he is coping with such a significant change in his life. The instrumentals are pretty much what you would expect. Jazz rap, neo-soul, alternative R&B beats and instrumentals. A lot of it being easy to digest and it's it's really chill. A lot of it is going for that, that vibe, that kind of sad boy vibe. And it's a project that I can sort of relate to because while I've never been through a divorce because I've never been married... I can at least relate to the grieving process of a relationship, especially one that meant so much 
to you. I can't imagine going through a, a divorce. And the grieving process is different for everyone. It seems like anime is Mike's coping mechanism. And since that is sort of a central theme on this record, we get a lot of references to anime. I don't watch it as much anime as I used to. The references are a bit lost on me, and that can get a little bit annoying. But if you call yourself an anime fan, I don't see how this is an issue. And he still is able to showcase his technical prowess as he's got a tight flow on Bukiardi, I think that's how you pronounce it, you know, rapping over this trip house beat. He's got smooth rapping on I'm a Joe Star, and same thing with Headass Idiot Shinji. Of course, there are comedic moments as well. The comedic highlight of this record being the Black Mirror episode, which he claims ruined his marriage. Should have come with a content warning. However, some beats and verses just go in one ear and out the other, and it, it's not very memorable. What the fuck is self-care? Has a good narrative, but the beat is pretty bare bones and boring. The neo-soul instrumental on Airplane Boneyard is derivative. And I'm not a big fan of the lyrics on Sweatpants Spider-Man. I think the hook for that song uh, just lost me as I thought it was really annoying. Not his best work, but I think there are some things to appreciate on this record. I hope there's not a lot of anime references on his next project. And uh, I, hope, I hope the guy's doing okay because I can imagine a divorce is, is tough. It's tough on... on, on everybody involved but with that that concludes this past week in music stay tuned because coming up i'm going to talk about new wave welcome back to sound encounters before the break i promised and we're going to go over New Wave and five albums to get you into the genre. So as always, when we do these what is segments, features, I like to call them, I got to talk about the background of New Wave as well as explain what this genre entails. New Wave emerged around the late 1970s as a response to mainstream corporate rock as well as a companion genre to post-punk and synth-pop. You can hear the influence of post-punk as a lot of new wave music is characterized by busy guitar melodies, jerky rhythms, stop-and-go composition structures, and percussive sections that are typically intricate. Early acts like Talking Heads, Elvis Costello, and Blondie heavily influenced the sound and aesthetic of the genre. They were very quirky, flashy, and eccentric, and because of that, other acts followed the the eccentricness of those bands. To distinguish itself from post-punk, bands took a more poppier approach as they were also influenced by 1960s pop. So they used a lot of electronic sounds and there was a heavy focus on synthesizers. Other bands like New Order, Devo, Tears for Fears focused on guitar rhythms and there was, a again, that heavy reliance on synthesizers. In that way, New Wave also served as a, as a synonym for synth-pop. And speaking of synth-pop, that genre and power-pop are also closely associated with New Wave, and many artists played a combo of all three at various points in their career. We're also going to see uh, some Afrobeat and world music and disco 
having a strong influence on the movement early on. You know, it is kind of like a hard genre to pinpoint because before I delved into new wave music, I had heard influential acts such as New Order and Talking Heads, and they did end up relying a lot on synthesizers and they were a bit quirky. But then as I started to listen to it more, you know, acts like Elvis Costello and Devo, who I thought were a little more post-punk, at least Devo was, were also classified as new wave. And so it is it is a hard genre to pinpoint. But hopefully these five albums that I will talk about will give you a better sense of what new wave is and the sounds and styles that come with this genre. At number one, we have Parallel Lines by Blondie, released in 1978. This is one of those albums that mixes pop rock and new wave together. This is the third studio album by New York group Blondie, which was the brainchild of vocalist Debbie Harry and guitarist Chris Stein. After the release of their second album, Plastic Letters, producer Richard Goddard stopped working with them, and he was responsible for Blondie's new wave and punk output. With Australian producer Mike Chapman now in the mix, the band turned to hooks and took a more pop-oriented approach with their songwriting. While there is more of those pop rock songs with catchy hooks like Hanging on the Telephone, Will Anything Happen, 1159, and the infamous One Way or Another, there are also songs that find a neat marriage of the two genres. We may have those mystifying keyboards on Fade Away and Radiate, but they are combined with the wailing rock and roll guitars and a, a, a sort of reggae-like outro. The dizzying keyboard melody on I Know But I Don't Know, which played together with the mimicking guitar melody, sounds gorgeous. Another fantastic mix of electronic and rock. And then we get to that disco influence on the very famous Heart of Glass you know, mix that disco together with its jittery keyboards and drummer Clem Burke's crashing cymbals and the choppy guitar rhythm. It makes for a, a lighter new wave bop, to say the least. Harry's stellar vocals also sell that track. You know, it's so distinct and it's so catchy. I find myself humming to the lyrics a lot whenever I listen to this song. Again, not exactly the best example of new wave, since pop rock kind of dominates this album, but it's a great starting point if you are unaware of new wave music and want to dip your toes in this genre. You know, it's pretty inoffensive, it's very catchy, and overall I think it's a good album to start with. And number two, we have This Year's Model by Elvis Costello and the Attractions, also released in 1978. Costello is an English singer-songwriter, and this is his second full-length album, and his first with The Attractions. After his first album, My Aim is True, which is more power pop and pub rock than new wave, and after his rebellious SNL performance in 1977, his popularity exploded in the UK and the US. Actually, before that SNL performance, he found a band to play with. He found a, a kind of country band to play with for his first album, but for this album and for other albums to follow, he was now playing with The Attractions, which consisted of Steve Nive on piano and organ, Bruce Thomas on bass, and Pete Thomas on drums. Elvis was another artist that combined rock with New Wave, although the New Wave is, is a bit more prominent here than on Blondie's album. This record is characterized by its jagged guitars, twitchy drum patterns, and the use of organs, which 
if you listen to this record, it kind of acts as a placeholder for synths. The track of the beat is a good example for the strange patterns in the music, as during the main melody you can hear both the guitar and drums. They, they hang for a beat, they are playing a note or two, and then just skip over the next beat, and then start playing again. This is the very jerky rhythm and stop-and-go play style of the band that is really a definitive quality for New Wave. They stray further from pop and traditional rock conventions on this year's Girl, which features this stumbling, irregular drum beat and guitars that sound almost atonal. Then you introduce the organ into the mix, and then you have a song that is nowhere near the mainstream rock sound. In that sense, a lot of the music on here could also be very punk, and certainly Elvis Costello sort of acted like a punk as he didn't want to be tied down to those conventions. A lot of these songs feature this whirling organ, and it's probably one of my favorite aspects of this record. I think it adds to the new wave sound and helped the bands distinguish themselves further from the rock of that time. I don't want to go to Chelsea's guitars have actually more in common with post-punk because that opening riff is, is very angular, and then you get a touch of that funky bass, and we are now seeing the similarities to post-punk. But again, that very poppy singing style and the poppy songwriting makes it new wave. One of my favorite tracks on here is actually Elvis Costello's, or at least one of his most famous songs, Pump It Up. It is a bit more pop rock oriented, but it's another song under Costello's sleeve that helped him gain exposure and subsequently expanded the reach of new wave music. We have uneven drums, a driving guitar melody, and an organ that kind of sounds like a carnival ride. The shouting vocals along with the background singers makes this a fun and exciting new wave song. Costello and the band really did lay the groundwork for new wave to come with its combination of post-punk, and pop rock, as well as that added organ, which I still think is a very important aspect to this record. And number three, I have Are We Not Men, We Are Devo by Devo, another album released in 1978. Devo originated from Akron, Ohio, and consisted of the Mothers Bob brothers, the Cassell brothers, and Alan Myers. They attracted attention from David Bowie Iggy Pop, Robert Fripp, and Brian Eno with a set of demos that they didn't even send to any of these artists. They stumbled upon them when the wife of Michael Aylward, a guitarist from another Akron, Ohio band, sent both Pop and Bowie those demos. While they were intrigued by Devo's music, and even Bowie was itching to produce their first album, Brian Eno eventually helmed the production for Are We Not Men. They are an often misunderstood band, their philosophy revolved around de-evolution, which is what Devo is short for. And that philosophy basically comes down to human regression through technology and, and herd mentality, which was a fairly recent term around that time. And they wanted to reflect their philosophy in their music with rigid and oppressive and mechanical as well as primal instrumentation. But make no mistake, they were influential artists in their genre, you know, giving us eccentric vocal delivery and music that was very jerky and robotic. Uncontrollable Urge begins with this lurching guitar melody that starts and stops. Mark Mothersbaugh's vocals are very anxious and uneven. It, it pretty much resembles a vocalist from a post-punk band. And to add to that quirky quality, 
harsh electronic tones are played during the outro of this song. We see the same jaggedness in the guitars and drums on Space Junk as they have a similar start-stop structure. And they move in this unique circular motion, repeating the same chords before delving into this downward spiral motion. A personal favorite track of mine, as well as a great example of their style of new wave, is on Jaco Homo. We get alien-like descending synth tones. They play the same guitar chords that just get drilled into your head. And you get Mark's brand of sporadic singing style. And what I think is, is, is the band's most genius move is covering the Rolling Stones' song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Because they are taking a song from a conventional rock and roll band and twisting it with their brand of new wave. Instead of Mick Jagger's vocals, you get Mark's yelpy, wild vocals. You get the choppy rhythms. And one thing that stood out to me was the caustic synth tone that cuts through the bass, guitar, and the drums. There's no denying the influence that Devo had on this genre. And they went on to great more accessible new wave music like their most famous song whip it from freedom of choice which is also another uh, another great album but but if you want to talk about influence and originality you got to start here with are we not men and we also get introduced to that quirky weirdness of devo which i absolutely love and number four we have remain in light by talking heads released in 1980 this is the fourth full-length album from the Talking Heads, and the third album produced by Brian Eno. Man, two in a row. Talking Heads were a legendary New York act consisting of keyboardist and guitarist Jerry Harrison, bassist Tina Weymouth, drummer Chris France, and of course, vocalist and guitarist David Byrne. I was going to bring it up eventually. Such a significant release. If you have any passing interest in New Wave, you know about this band and you know about this record. Talking Heads got famous for their fusion of punk, funk, and dance on albums like 77, more songs about buildings and food, and Fear of Music. And those albums, specifically 77, was so, were so original and influential that it, it got Brian Eno's attention, and he produced the next three albums for them. They are also pretty much well-known for their idiosyncratic leader, for his strange vocal delivery, putting emphasis on random words. There seems to be a trend <laughs> with the odd style of singing. For this release, they decided to experiment with African polyrhythms, funk, and electronics, as well as trying something a little bit different with their songwriting, as Talking Heads performed instrumental jams first and wrote lyrics second. They would also record these instrumental tracks as a series of looping grooves. Eno was reluctant to work with them again, but was quickly persuaded when he heard the instrumental demos. Bjorn was also going through a very heavy case of writer's block. So to combat that, he just started writing stream of consciousness thoughts. And that's how most of the lyrics come across as in this album. You know, you hear the lyrics of Born Under Punches and he keeps talking about, look at these hands. And at first I just didn't understand what he was saying, what he was trying to convey. And I think that makes it a much more iconic song. But since we're on the topic of Born Under Punches... I just want to talk about the polyrhythms on here because they're such a, a great example as so many rhythms and, and melodies are crashing together. There's that funky bass line, electronic bleeps and bloops and the dissonant like guitars and they just keep looping, which is a great example of 
how they were recording their songs. It creates this overwhelming listening experience because so many things are happening at once. And when I first heard it, I just, my brain just didn't register what I was listening to. But as you continually listen to the song, you start to appreciate the vibrant textures. We got other examples of African rhythms and grooves on The Great Curve, which features this fast-paced beat created by layering these skin drum rhythms. The new wave of that song comes in during the guitars that ring out and it's soaring guitar solo. Houses in Motion bumps up the funk with that dirty-ass bass rhythm. And one of my favorite aspects of that song is the call-and-response vocals. One of my favorite tracks, and a track that you may be familiar with, is Once in a Lifetime. That song was just so easy for me to get into because of the shimmering electronics, the jagged bass line, and the African percussions. You know, we get that looping again as well, the looping rhythms and melodies. I think it's a very prominent on this song, especially with Bjorn's usual style of eccentric vocal delivery and those iconic lyrics, which just seem to repeat itself. The song ends with a Velvet Underground-esque drone at the end, mixing in art rock along with new wave and Afro beat and funk. I feel like I say this a lot with uh, albums that I think are important, but this is an important album and a very important new wave album. If you haven't heard this album, do yourself a favor, pause this podcast and listen to it right now. Just a fantastic example of new wave meshing with funk and African inspirations. And the final album on my list is Power, Lies, and Corruption by New Order, released in 1983. New Order is a special band because they are a band that defined new wave, and I feel like this album also ended up defining new wave. This is the second studio album by English rock band New Order, consisting of vocalist and guitarist Bernard Sumner, bassist Peter Hook, and drummer Stephen Morris. The band formed soon after their previous band, Joy Division, disbanded after lead vocalist frontman Ian Curtis committed suicide. Sometime after New Order formed, they picked up Gillian Gilbert, who knew how to use a synthesizer. Joy Division's second full-length album, Closer, also used a bit of synthesizer, so when we listen to Closer, it, it kind of gives us a sense of where they were going and kind of how New Order was going to sound like. I talked about Closer on a previous episode. Go check out that episode if you're interested in, in learning more about Joy Division's Closer. This record heavily utilized synthesizers, and that's evident on the first song, Age of Consent. While we have Hook's very groovy and danceable bass line and Morris's fast-paced drum rhythm, which is a fantastic rhythm section, don't get me wrong, it propels its way through the song. But we get Gilbert's soaring and bright keyboard solo that just cuts through the instrumentation and steals the spotlight from the rhythm. The Village is a bit of a, a funkier and bass-heavy synth rhythm that lays the foundation for the rest of the song. It's juxtaposed by these drum snares and, and summoners' clean guitars. It's a very busy song because of the synth rhythm. Notice when Sumner appears on vocals, the guitars die down, and we are left with the drums, the agitated synth melody, vocals, and of course that bass-heavy rhythm, but without that rhythm, the song would feel so much more empty. I feel like a similar thing happens on Ultraviolence, although the keyboard rhythm is a bit moodier than The Village. Where the synths really shine are on Your Silent Face. The song opens with these danceable synth tones with snares in the background, but soon after, these airy and uplifting tones come in and elevate the song. 
As Sumner hops on vocals, we hear a darker and dirtier synth tone playing underneath the more danceable one. It evolves later on in the song and it becomes a lot more prominent, but this is such a great example of amazing synth work on a new wave record. Gilbert really, I, I think, defined this album with its synths. You know, and then that does beg the question, not a lot of groundbreaking stuff happens on this record. It already is reliant on the previous set of new waivers and sort of borrows that sound and and they utilize it for this record but it doesn't break the mold however it's the elevation of synth pop and the perfection of the new wave craft that makes it such a groundbreaking release in the genre and truly one of new wave's most essential records and with that that concludes my list of essential new wave albums to recap we have Parallel Lines by Blondie, This Year's Model by Elvis Costello and the, and the Attractions, Are We Not Men, We Are Devo by Devo, Remain in Light by Talking Heads, and Power, Lies, and Corruption by New Order. Do you think there's an album I should have included on this list? Let me know. You can get in contact with me on Twitter at Sound Encounters, or send me a voice message through Anchor, which you will find in the podcast description. What are some of your favorite New Wave albums? Is there an album that I neglected to put on this list. I want to hear your your thoughts and opinions because I would love to continue this new wave discussion. Well, that does it for this week of Sound Encounters. I hope you enjoyed me talking about new wave as much as I enjoyed letting you guys know about new wave and all the essential albums that come with that genre. In fact, I think I'm going to go ahead and listen to some more new wave because now I've got the the new wave sound stuck in my brain. But I I wanted to talk about how I think this is the first part of a two-parter. Since I talked about New Wave, I feel like now I have to talk about No Wave next week. And you may be asking yourself, well, what is No Wave? Well, stay tuned and you just might find out. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, let your music enthusiast friends know. We can start building up the Sound Encounters squad. And if, especially if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed other Sound Encounters episodes, leave a review for me on Apple Podcasts and I will give you a shout out. And I would appreciate that as it helps expand the Sound Encounters reach. Follow the Sound Encounters Twitter and Instagram at Sound Encounters. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and it could be featured on the next episode of Sound Encounters. Do you have a question or suggestion for me? Then visit the Twitter or Anchor page and submit your question. That too could be featured on the next episode of Sound Encounters. Thank you to Soundstripe for their wonderful selection of music, which I use today. And thank you for tuning in and listening and supporting my little show here. I'm Caesar. this has been Sound Encounters, and I'll see you next week.